just before the war broke out. He was a student in Berkeley, and this man was a statistics student. And he arrived a little bit late one day to class, and he did not know that the problems that were on the board were the two famous unsolvable mathematical problems. No one had ever solved them. They were deemed unsolvable. And the teacher was using this as an object lesson. But George Danzing came to church, I mean, came to a class late that day, and he missed the part. He missed the speech that said they were unsolvable, and he actually thought it was homework. So he wrote it out, and he wanted to get it done in three weeks' time when it was due, but it took him six weeks, and he turned it in, and the teacher called him into the office, and he thought he was in trouble because he had taken three extra weeks to turn it in, and he was ready to explain why it took so long. And George Danzing was given a, a standing ovation by the teacher, and the teacher said, you've solved the two statistical mathematical problems that are unsolvable. And George Danzing later on would receive the National Medal of Science. He would become a professor at Stanford University. And George Danzing would always say, if I knew those problems were unsolvable, I would not have solved them. I would have misunderstood my ability and my talent, and I would not have pursued it, I would not have gone to the depths that I did if I knew they were unsolvable. And to this day, the oil refineries uh, organize and manage their companies based on George Danzing's statistical methods. He was a, uh, I don't know his title, but in the war, he was one that uh, allowed us for combat warfare, statistical means. He was help, one that helped win the war. Airlines, ship lines, they all used the methods that George Danzing created. And he would say that he would not have become the George Danzing that he is if he had had that boundary on him. And so this morning, I want to remind you that even if there's a wound in your heart, a terror in your soul, maybe, maybe you're just you know, maybe you're just really afraid. Well, you know what? Um, I had somebody tell me one time, uh, they said, well, you know, I'm scared. I'm scared to get prayer. And I said, well, why are you scared? They said, because you're scary. I said, well, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry that I'm scary. But, you know, sometimes when we come before God, we have to remember that he's not um, our buddy. He is the Savior of the whole world. He's the King of glory. He's the one who sits on high yet walks here down below. He is everything at all times. And he may be your friend, but be very careful before you start calling him your daddy. Because he's God and he's sovereign. I have never known God to be horrible to somebody. I've never known it. Ever. And I've been doing this my entire life. When I got saved, I was three years old because the preacher in the old Baptist church said, if you want a friend, well, I, I, a friend sounded good to me. My mom had seven kids, and I broke away from the pack. And I walked down that aisle and came to that man. I remember doing it and saying, I would like to have a friend. He picked me up, and I became the poster child for, don't you want a friend? Well, I would grow, and, and through trial and adversity and sickness and horror and the things that I endured, I would learn that I was a sinner and I needed a savior. I would learn that I was a human being, fragile, and I needed a healer, and I needed a king, and I needed a friend. And Jesus would be all those things to me. The Bible says that Jesus belongs to God, and we belong to Jesus, and it is through him 
that we emerge to the throne of God. For sin never sent anybody to hell, and the absence of it never sent anybody to heaven. It's the knowing of Christ. It is the knowing of Christ how we get to God, and is the not knowing of Christ how we go to hell. So the knowing of Jesus Christ has been everything to me in my life, and I hope that it has been that way for you. Because without Christ, we can do nothing. Without Christ, we cannot truly repent. Without Christ, we cannot truly walk in any manner of abundance at all. We have to practice the abundance of Christ to one another. I, a few weeks ago, had a stem cell transplant. In fact, I'm not supposed to be here, but I felt it was important. So I, uh, you know, I kind of threw the doctor's orders away, and I came. Uh, so I do want you to hear what I'm saying. It, it, it comes at a great cost. I need you to understand that. Um, so it's it's important. Uh, the Lord told me to speak to you exactly last night about climbing a tree because what I'm going to tell you today, if you're not willing to shake yourself of your habits and of your understanding and of your behavior, if you're not willing to shake yourself of those things and get up that tree like Zacchaeus did, you will not be able to understand what I'm going to tell you today. And we're going to talk about revival. I'm going to talk to you about the road to revival. God is trustworthy. And if it was not for him to tell you these things, I would speak on something different. The Bible's big. It's full of wonderful things. I could tell you about anything. But the road to revival is a sacred subject, and I want to give it to you today. Number one, there are three points we're going to talk about. Number one is to renew. Number two is to repair. And number three is to repent. You know, when Jesus gave out the bread first, the Bible says that he broke it and he blessed it and then he gave it. And if a people do not know that they're blessed, they will not be able to allow the Lord to break them. And if they're not broken and they're not blessed, they are not qualified to be given. Everybody wants to be blessed, but they don't understand the process of that is to be broken before the Lord. Broken before the Lord means to get over ourselves and to get over our trouble, get over all the damage that the world has put on us because it's just the world doing it. The world did that to you. God didn't do that to you. And we have to stop blaming God for the stupidity of this planet. So as we go forward, and I, I'm really, you wouldn't know it by last night, but I'm really not a long preacher. In fact, I tell my staff preachers, if you go more than 25 minutes, you don't know what you're doing. And so I break that rule all the time, but not when they're looking. So renew, repair, and repent. If you're not note takers, you should be, because there's things that you need to remember. Let's read 1 Kings 18. We're going to read a bit, 21 <coughs> to 40. And Elijah <coughs> came unto all the people and said, How long how to be between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, Not a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are four hundred and fifty men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks, and let them choose one bullock for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under it. And I will dress the other bullock, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under it. Verse 24. And call ye on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answers by fire, let him be God. 
And all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves, and dress it first, for ye are many. Call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it and called on the name of Balaam from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered, and they leaped upon the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry loud, for he is a god. Either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or he is in a journey, a peradventure. He sleeps, and he must be wakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass, when midday was past, that they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, and there was neither voice nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me, and all the people came near unto him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would remain, two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood and said, Fill four barrels with water pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood and he said do it the second time they did it the second time and he said do it a third time and they did it a third time and the water ran round about the altar and filled the trench also with water and it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet he came near and he said Lord God of Abraham Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell, and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, then they fell on their faces. And they said, The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon, and he slew them there. There are 450 Baal prophets, and... 300 grove prophets. These are witches. They're Satanists. Elijah out on Mount Carmel in the groves, and they have them today. Riverside, California, down by L.A. is full of them. There are satanic ranches up there, and they pull kids off the street, and they do things unspeakable, terrible, terrible terrifying things. I know I have been there, not as a participant, but doing other things in the name of the Lord. It's real then, it's real now. You have a real adversary, but you have a real God. Amen? 
The enemy can only win when the saints forget that they are filled with the power of the living God. The Bible says the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead is in you. That is a responsibility that we have to get out of the way. If we're laden down with problems and things we can't overcome, sin that burdens us, the Word of God says, lay it aside. Lay aside the sin that does so easily beset you. Lay it aside. That means turn away from it. Just decide you're not going to be that person anymore. Look at verse 21. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long will you be of two opinions? If the Lord be God, then follow him. If Baal, then follow him. The people answered not a word. I want to point something out to you, and we're going to discuss the first topic for yourself this morning. Renew. To renew your heart and agree with God, that's what that means. This is the road to revival. To renew your heart and agree with God. To renew your heart and agree with God. Sometimes it's difficult to agree with God. If you pray for somebody and they're sick and they end up dying, the next sick guy that comes along, you're probably going to think twice before you pray for him because you have wounded faith. You're terrified. You're not quite sure. Well, you have to forgive yourself. You have to forgive God. And you have to find out, were you supposed to pray that or not? And you have to stand firm on the things that you believe and that you know. So walking the Christian faith in power, in any kind of power, means that you have to have renewed faith. You have to renew your heart. It's broken. You don't believe anymore. Maybe you don't trust. Maybe somebody hurt you. Maybe you hurt yourself. You have to be renewed. You have to decide that you're going to agree with God, no matter what it looks like, that you're going to agree with God. And so often people will say, well, I have a confusion about this or that. And I always ask them, well, how long are you reading the Word of God? How, how much do you read? I mean, you guys were on a mission. You had to read James. I understand you're sick of the James, book of James, more than likely, uh, here. <laughs> You've overdosed. I get it. But in all that reading, you find something out about yourself, don't you? And you find something out about the Word of God. You find there's a missing piece, and you begin to insert it. And I'll tell people, you can't make it without the Word of God. It's the foundation for everything. It teaches you how to pray. It inspires you to worship. It instructs you on intercession. Without the Word of God, you, can't, you really can't be effective. And people will say, well, I'm reading a half hour a day. I said, well, I'd read an hour. I'm reading an hour. Well, I'd read two. But people don't want to do it, and there's a reason why. And I'm going to tell you in a minute really what it is. Number two comes from verse 30, repair. Repair. And this is interesting to me. Elijah said unto the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. He's going to set it on fire in the name of God, or God himself would set it on fire, actually. The fire would come down and consume it. Elijah knew it. Elijah believed that. So if you have a broken down altar, why on earth would you take the time to fix it? Just to have it get burnt up. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's like when you're moving out of your house, you don't replace light bulbs, you don't, you know, those kind of things. You try to keep it in good repair, but you don't do those things. You're leaving. So why does he repair the altar? I'll tell you why. Because before true revival comes, you have to repair the altars in your life. You have to forgive. You have to repair things. You have to renew your faith in God. You have to believe God, and you have to repair the broken, messed up stuff in your life, whether you did it or not. And there's a scripture in the book of Matthew, Matthew 5, I believe, that says, if somebody's mad at you, it's your responsibility. Even though you didn't do anything, 
It is your responsibility to go to them and make it right and make it right until they forgive you. You have to, and you didn't do anything. It seems horribly unfair. But why is that in the word? Because it's good for our soul. It's good for our soul to be active in spiritual conflict resolution, to go forward and say, I must have done something. Even if I was right, perhaps I presented it wrong. You know, can you forgive me? You're supposed to seek that forgiveness. We have to repair the broken altars or the fire of God will not come. I could keep you an hour and talk about that. We can't do that. There's a potluck, which is extremely important. I was an hour and a half late to a service because of things, airfare and whatnot, and the pastor's in a panic, and I said, well, feed them. They're Christians. Just feed them. He says, but there's two rows of hell's angels. I said, love them and feed them. And they did, and all the hell's angels were saved before I got there. It was great. But there was a lot of food that happened in that meeting. So we understand the importance of that. Number three is to repent. Verse 39 discusses this. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, the Bible says. And they said, the Lord, he is the God, the Lord, he is the God. When we repent to the Lord, our mind can be changed. If we don't repent, our mind will not be changed. And it says in here that they saw it. They saw something. Sometimes you have to see something. It's wicked. It's terrible. We're people. But if we remember God and we look and we watch and we see, we will realize this is the Lord God. Jonah, when he's in the belly of the whale, what changed his story? The Bible says he remembered God. And when he remembered God, the full impact of who God was and who was calling him and what was happening hit him. And then he prayed. And then he, he was delivered. And sometimes when you're delivered, it's not what you really want. When Jonah was delivered, he wasn't just kind of burped out on the shore. It was projectile vomit. The giant fish was out in the sea and vomited this man up with great force on the shore. And I'm sure he was covered with things that didn't smell good and seaweed and everything else. And that's what happens when you disobey God. When you get back on the track, sometimes you don't smell great. And you got to get cleaned up. So this morning, I want you to mark these things in your mind to renew, to repair, and repent. And this means there's work in front of you. There's work in front of each one of us. We don't always like to do these things. That person, you know, they don't deserve my affection. Well, you don't deserve God's, and neither do I. But here he is loving us. Here he is taking us through. These three steps, if you follow these three things out, you're on the road to revival. And I'll tell you something else. There has been a drought in this story. Where on earth did they get the water? God will ask you to do impossible things and use resources that are clearly unavailable in order for you to do what he's called you to do. Maybe you don't have the constitution to repent. He's calling you to do it. Maybe you don't have the desire to rebuild that bridge, to build up that broken altar. He's calling you to do it. There was no water, but they found it, and it was a valuable commodity, which tells me something of great value was poured out willingly for apparently no reason. He didn't need the water to get the fire, but God wanted the water because it cost something. Do you understand? God will always provoke you to behave in such a way of personal cost. You don't like it. You don't want it. Well, you know, it's like I told my kids when they were growing up. I tell them to do something. I don't want to. I didn't ask if you wanted to. You're doing it. 
you know, it's not a democracy. Martial law. God's not asking you, you know, do you want to do this? He's pretty much saying, I love you. I want you to do it so that I can have my hands free so I can bless you. The greatest, one of the greatest uh, stories of behavioral analysis that I had ever heard was a story of a man who always had homosexual tendencies, always. And he was married and he had kids. And he was a Christian. And he said, I just can't, I can't get over it. I'm just not, you know, I'm not in the word enough. I'm lazy. But I love the Lord. So I've never acted on it. I've never acted on it. But I have these feelings, but I've never acted on it. And he died a man who had never acted on a desire that he had because he knew it was ungodly. And I think to myself, it was such a drag that he, couldn't get purified from that but yet what a lover of the Lord what a lover of the Lord that that he could say but I knew it was wrong so I just you know I didn't do it it's like a man that would say I, I I know I shouldn't drive down that road because there are certain women on that road that would turn my head I'm not going on that road it, like a woman that says you know I'm, I, I just want to kill these kids but I'm not gonna it's gonna be okay you know, or, or like somebody who just really wants to be wounded and wants to get the attention, and they say, you know, it's not of God. I have to turn from that. It's such a powerful decision when we make a decision. And this is part of what this scripture is saying. You have to renew. You have to say, you know what, I'm going to be different. I am going to choose not to be this way. And God always catches you in the end. Did you know that? He always collects you if you choose that. He will always rescue you. And he'll always be part of what you're doing. One of the biggest reasons why people could not follow this, why we can't follow this, is because of distraction. The road to revival, any kind of revival, is often destroyed because of distractions. I was in Washington, D.C. preaching, and I don't usually take you know, time off. I, I just I have to do what I do, and I, and I you know, leave town. But I was in D.C., and I wanted to go to the Supreme Court, you know. And so uh, I went there, and I, I had my, you know, my runners on, and uh, I had my high heels in my purse because I wanted to hear the clickety-clack of my heels on that marble. I needed to hear that um, as, a, you know, as a former attorney. That was extremely important to me. I don't know why, but it was. So my husband's like, well, better put your shoes on so you can calm down, you know. So I'm marching around there, and my five-inch heels, you know, I was happy. And the Lord told me, Everything's going to be okay. Pray for the country. America's my daughter, as Israel is my son. Just pray. Got it. I am honoring the blood of those who went before. Don't be in a panic. I'm honoring the blood, the sacrifices. And I've held to that. No matter who's the president, I know who's the king. And so I never, I never panic. I don't follow it. I don't care about it. But I say that because after I had had that experience, I had a dream as I was spending days interceding for the country and for the people and for myself to rise up. And I had a dream that there was a room probably a couple times larger than this room. The walls were mahogany and everything in this room was opulent. It was glass and it was gold and it was deep wood. And all along the walls 
there were drawers with uh, gold handles. And people were hustling about in this room, and it was a vision that wouldn't leave me for years. Uh, in fact, I had this dream many years ago, and it's clear as anything. And I keep it at the front of my mind to remind myself about distractions. And people were in here pulling these drawers out, and they were looking for their next task. Every drawer didn't have a name on it, but people instinctively knew which drawer was theirs, like a filing system of sorts. And I was in there, and, and I was going to my drawer, and I was going to find what my next task would be in the, on the earth for the kingdom of God, that we could walk these things out, and we all have tasks. And so I was going to my drawer, and I pulled it out, and I noticed around me that everybody who had been looking for their task was now gone. And I heard this squawking, the squawking of a very annoying bird, like a sun conure, you know, just a rotten, we had one one time, you know, I put it in the garage, you could still hear it across the house, it was just not okay, loud, loud, annoying bird, and it was in a beautiful cage on the corner of the room, directly across from where we were, and it was squawking and squawking and demanding attention, and everybody went over there. And I thought, what's going on? So then I went over there. And we're all over there watching the bird. And one by one, the drawers begin to disappear. And I look up and I see a sign along the wall that says, my portion is given equally to all people. And I knew instinctively, but not all people take it. It isn't a matter of give it to me, God. It's a matter of let me take it. Let me walk in it. Let me receive it. But it's distraction. Maybe there's a television show. Maybe there's a people. I don't know what there is, but there's distractions. And as Christians, we have to become extremely disciplined to be able to walk in the mandate that God has laid before us. Amen? And if there's sin in the way, it's no big deal. Just deal with it. Just deal with it. The closer you get to God, the less that sin will appeal to you. You know, the, the statistics from the Barn Institute tell us that 80% of all men have or do watch pornography. And 65% of that 80% are in the church. It's a freaky statistic. And another thing about pornography, in case you, you know, are happening upon that, five hours of watching porn permanently damages your brain. Just five hours. You are permanently changed. And it doesn't let go outside of the deliverance of God. Pornography wants to do two things. Oh, it figures you'll be adulterous. It figures you'll be perverted. You know, it's just kind of a given. But what its real cause is, is it wants you to become homosexual and it wants you to become a child molester. That's what it wants. Every person in that, those categories that I have counseled, they've always started out with that. And if you are doing that, you might notice there's always a flash that comes up of child pornography or same-sex pornography. It's far more perverted than you think, and it's not innocent, and you let demons loose upon your home when you do that. You let them loose. And you can't say, well, you can touch this, but you can't touch that because that's sacred. I'm letting you know it's going for the sacred thing. That's what it's caused. That's what it's supposed to do. So any sin that we have, uh, you know, nobody needs to hear about it. Maybe your pastor does. Uh, but the problem is it's, it shouldn't get that much glory. It shouldn't get that much attention. We should know that that's bad. 
You know, my, I, sometimes we just have to keep it simple. If we're going to follow the road to revival, we have to keep it very simple. We have to renew. We have to repair. We have to repent. And if we truly repent, it's not a remorse. It's a gut-wrenching terror that I have offended God. And sometimes we keep it so complicated. When my kids started dating, I did, they couldn't date till they were 16. And, and I just thought, you know, they, they needed to know stuff. And they're 16. I think they probably should learn at 11, 10. I don't know. My husband and I went in there t in a meeting with our kids. And he goes, well, you should, you know, be the one. I'm like, all right, here's the deal. Here's a sex education conversation. And they're sweating, you know. They have their boyfriend and their girlfriend was in there, too. I had all four of them in there. I said, here it is. The birds and bees. Birds never touch bees. That's it. We're good. If you just follow that rule, you're going to make it. Birds don't touch bees. They're like, well, okay. They're both virgins when they got married, so, hey, maybe it worked. And a lot of prayer. We make mistakes, but if we just try to keep it simple and just don't complicate it, God's going to meet us there because we're all just fabulous. We already know that because God made us. But, you know, he's more fabulous. Amen? There's people that need prayer in here, and I'd love to pray for you. If you would allow that, I would count it a great privilege. I am done with crash landing. This is it. So uh, let's stand if you can, and let's worship if we can have some worship. And as you need prayer, I'd love for you to come up. It doesn't matter what situation you're in. It doesn't matter what position you're in. The Lord loves you, and he came to love you. He came to show you how very much he loves you. So don't be afraid. Uh, I, I know I'm scary, but really, the Lord's not. He loves you. Father, I thank you for this people, God. I thank you that as we approach your throne, God, we do so, Lord, boldly, but we do so thoughtfully, God. We do it carefully, Lord because we know that you are sovereign, and we recognize you as sovereign. And Lord, I ask you to send your Holy Spirit that we would walk, Lord God, faithfully in the mandate that the Holy Spirit has sent out in front of us. And Jesus, we thank you for the great sacrifice of Calvary. We thank you, Lord, that there is nothing we could do to make you turn away. Lord, you're not surprised by anything, and I thank you, Father, for that. I thank you that you take nothing by surprise, God. Thank you for knowing us, and thank you for showing up in spite of us, Lord. It is very much in spite of me, in spite of us, Lord. Thank you for Calvary. Amen.